Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt, Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. So if you guys want to stick your headphones on, you're going to need need them. We don't even know what we're doing. I know. This is unfair. (laughs) That's all right. Hello, this is Sam Evans-Brown, and you're listening to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And I'm here with two guests who we have surprised by bringing into the studio. Can uh, can you guys introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Dave Anderson from the Forest Society. And I'm Chris Martin from New Hampshire Audubon. <laughs> and we're the co-hosts of NHPR's Something Wild. But, but we're not here to talk about that. Uh, we've brought you here to talk about something special. Producer Maureen McMurray, you want to do the honors? Sure. Why do geese make things? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. So Ask Sam is our semi-regular segment where I answer audience questions about the natural world. But um, sometimes Sam doesn't know the answer. Right, because I don't actually know that much. So instead, I've, I've sprung this on you guys. We've invited you in here because we're hoping that you can help to answer some of these questions. We could do that. Chris is an ologist. He's an ornithologist, and he's a senior biologist at New Hampshire Audubon. I work as a naturalist, which means I'm kind of a hack, but um, I lead trips and take people out in the woods. And... Yeah, and hugs trees. So we got two hacks and someone who knows who knows some things. And there we between go. the three of us, we'll figure it out. I'm nervous. Are you, Chris? Yeah. This yeah. is a set. All right, here we go. Hi, Sam. My name's Matt from uh, Katura, Australia. Um, I've got a quick question for you. I do a bit of hiking up in the in the highlands around where I live, um, and I noticed that wombats actually poo in cubes. So I did a bit of research, and it says that 
so it stops it from rolling down a hill. Um, I was wondering if that would be beneficial or not to them. Um, thanks for taking my time and my question. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> Did this call come in on April 1st? I have no idea when it came I in. I think in order to answer this, I have to be upside down. So let me just hang like a wombat uh, from a tree, and then I can get his perspective. I, I guess, you know, why would you want it not to roll downhill? Well, you know, so it will stay put. Uh, Water supply? I'm, I'm now suddenly maybe, I'm jumping in. Well, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I take issue with the premise. How do we know that wombat poop is square. That's true. Did, did we fact check this, Maureen? Oh, no. Yeah. I figured you guys know. You're the experts. Right. I, okay. You know, in terms of wombats, I haven't seen any wombats in New Hampshire recently. <laughs> but um, I imagine if you're a prey species and you want to be sort of clandestine, you know, you might want to keep your feces confined to where, you know, get it together, as they say. So there's a theory. So that a passing predator is not going to, a dingo perhaps, might, you know, find you up on the hillside. Well, I think a wombat's a lot like, I mean, they're kind of like porcupines. Are they? I mean, kind of in a loose way. In porcupine middens, you end up with piles and piles of these oval porcupine droppings. Sure. So probably for storage and stacking, the square droppings would be more efficient. It's like the square watermelons that they grow, right? right? Shipping. Easier to pack. If you're ordering some, they, I don't know. That is an incredibly ludicrous question that I have absolutely. No. Our, our Australian listeners are really, every time we get a question from them, it's, I think they're just trolling us. They're trying to make us look silly. Absolutely. You guys are so America-centric. Sam, are we going to have to call a wombat <laughs> expert? I think we may have <laughs> to. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so wombats do not generally poo in cubes. On purpose. Okay, so this is Alice Swinborne, a PhD candidate with the University of Queensland in Australia, and I spoke with her over Skype. It is cuboidal shape because uh, essentially where they live, it's it's semi-arid environment, and so their their gut basically um, just tries to compact and draw out as much water as possible. Um, through the five to, say, 12, 14-day gut transit time. And so they come out like little compact, really, really dry, essentially little bricks. I was just going to say, I like that you have to uh, specify that they're not doing this on purpose. <laughs> they're, not, they're not just the sheer force of will, you know, cubing them up. It's, it's funny because that it does come, a uh, few people do think it's territory, the not rolling down the hill thing. That's not the case at all. They're not a territorial animal. Um, they do not have specific areas and they tend to have a, a latrine um, per se. So they'll just go to a common area where they just poo. But I guess if they're not territorial, it's 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 just an odd feature. Exactly. Because majority of my work has been wombats in captivity and it's very, very different. So they have water access all the time. And I used to collect scats from girls and they would look like little love hearts or uh, kidney bean shapes, very small, probably about one centimetre in diameter. Whereas if you go out in the wild, they can be about two, uh, two and a half to three centimetres in diameter. So there you have it. Chris, you're actually right. They uh, they poop like porcupines, though, uh, all in one place. It's only fitting. All right. Another question? Sure. <laughs> Please. <laughs> all the blood's rushing to my head. Let me get right side up again. I, I think you guys should be able to handle this one. Hey, Sam. This is Sally calling from Dover, New Hampshire. 
And I was hiking this morning with my dog um, near Great Bay in Durham. And I looked out over the water and I saw two swans. And I took my phone out and I took some pictures because I thought this was an exciting, rare bird sighting. And um, But then I thought... I I couldn't imagine that swans are native to New Hampshire. So I was wondering if swans are an invasive species, you know, were they someone's pets that got loose? Um, I'm curious and I'd like to know. Thanks. So here we are much more comfortably in somebody's wheelhouse. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, I feel like we can handle this one. Great Bay, what she was probably seeing were mute swans, which are not native to North America. They're from Europe. And uh, they have been brought in because of their beauty. And they have um, gone wild. And swans gone wild. It's amazing. (laughs) And uh, I know in Vermont, they actually uh, remove mute swan eggs from wetlands trying to reduce the reproduction. There's a euphemism. Well, it's also really dangerous because there are YouTube videos, believe me, where you can go and look at people who have gotten too close to a mute swan nest, let alone going there with the intent of removing their eggs. And they are battered, and I think someone was actually killed. By I, oh, these guys weigh 15, 18, 20 pounds. They have a seven-foot wingspan. They're massive birds and a very strong neck. That, uh, and, da- and dangerous. All right. There you go, Sally. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Hi, I'm Lale Aracoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on Women Who Travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Another question? Um, hi, my name is Tim, and yesterday I was planting trees in my yard, and last night as I was lying in bed with the full moon's brightness kind of keeping me up, I thought about that old thing about uh, if you dig a, dig a hole during the full moon, and you try and put all the soil back in during the whack, the wane moon, uh, the soil won't fit in or it will. I know there's something with biodynamic farming about planting with the moon. But my question uh, translates to, does the the volume of the earth change with the moon? Curious. 
Right up Dave's alley. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, so the, so in the old Farmer's Almanac, which is a New Hampshire institution based in Dublin, there are charts that talk about times for planting root crops. But um, I'm no ancient farmer or ma- ancient mariner, so I, I, I really can't say. Okay, Janice. Yeah. Uh, Janice Stillman, you are with the Old Farmer's Almanac. Uh, how long have you been there? Oh, my. I've been here since the year 2000. I'm the 13th editor and the first woman. Okay, so this is the question. Does the volume of Earth change with the cycles of the moon? To the best of our knowledge, this phenomenon is wholly untrue. <laughs> you have the same amount of dirt no matter what phase the moon is in. Um, but certainly here at the Old Farmer's Almanac, we get questions about planting by the moon in every dimension and category you can imagine. You know, there are lots of folks who like to follow the traditional practices and certainly who believe them. And it really is based on the idea in in the simplest fashion that during the waxing and waning of the moon, each one of those is the better time to plant above ground or below ground crops. So your above ground crops would be, for example, those that that produce, say, your tomatoes or your Brussels sprouts that produce above ground, and the things that produce below ground would be your beets and your carrots and your potatoes and like that. So do you know where these ideas come from? I mean, is there is there like a, can we trace this to a particular tradition or a particular sort of religious, um, you know, background? Actually, the idea of gardening by the moon and the signs is as old as dirt. It really dates back to the ancients. And even the earliest almanacs dating back to the Egyptians were astrological in in primary form. So it's a belief system. Do we have any science that says that this is beneficial? The straight up right answer is no. <laughs> no, no scientist <laughs> that I'm aware of ever speaks supportively and positively about this. This is a belief system. This is a it's a tradition. And, um, you know, keep in mind that it's a ritual of chores and it's really part of what the Old Farmer's Almanac hopes to bring to the page and bring to the readers, and that is to learn to observe, mm. to learn to watch, mm-hmm. and to learn to to kind of live by nature and natural cycles. You guys get some wacky questions. Uh, hang on to your hats. We have one. <laughs> oh, we have one more question. This one's for Sam. Well, hi there. This is Bennett from Belfast, Maine. Colin, nice. Excited to try out, try on this Ask Sam business. Because I've had something that's been bothering me for a while. It has to do with this uh, evolution. And uh, I was just thinking about the other day, we was talking about shacks and how they ain't changed much in a long time. <laughs> and But I'm under the impression that every generation of shack that comes out, or anything else for that matter, you've got yourself some of them that are wicked suited to the environment that they was born in. And then there's some of them that weren't. And when you've got an environment that doesn't change much, then the ones that are most successful would be the ones that haven't mutated or nothing, that they ain't changed. So is that evolution in that situation? Or is that is there some other word for that? That's what I've been wondering. Look, I just love his accent. It gives him instant credibility. As, as a naturalist, if you have a British accent like David Attenborough, you've got cred. If you're calling in from rural Maine, if you can talk like that, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. you. Right. He, yeah. had, he had me at Belfast, Maine, yeah. by God. Yeah. And, well, and then if there's any doubt, as soon as he said shacks. Yeah. I think he, what he's talking about actually is um, 
adaptation and natural selection as it comes towards shacks. And so it's it's not evolution, but I think he's talking about the environment shaping the building or the architectural vernacular that we might call a shack and its fenestration and its windows. I believe probably there is some natural selection at work that's causing these buildings to change. It only works on living creatures. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you, when we, I, don't, I disagree. I think you lost me at fenestration here. <laughs> yeah. How many times a day do you get the, to say the, the word fenestration? The reason the shacks don't change is because they got the design perfect already. Yeah. Why should it change? I mean, well, think there's like lots of like alligators, turtles, like a lot of them. Like they've there've been small changes. Now, if years. global warming is a is 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 a force to be reckoned with, those shacks, the way they're designed now, are going to get really hot. Well, that's my point. And more so they're going to have more to vents? change the sure. design. Oh, I see. You've been making a pun this whole time, and I just I only just realized <laughs> it. No, I'm not. I still don't get it. Shacks, like you know, like small outbuildings. Yes. Oh. <laughs> What was he talking about? <laughs> I, I'm talking about shacks. <clears throat> he was believe, talking about shacks. I believe we're referring to uh, uh, marine predators with sharp teeth, uh, sharks. Uh, You're kidding me. <laughs> I never heard that. <laughs> wait, wait, are you guys putting me on here? No. Wait, you weren't joking? No. <laughs> he's, absolutely, he was, he's talking about shark. Okay, well, He's talking about fishing shacks. <laughs> Out on the lake. Oh, my God. He's talking about sharks. I thought he was talking about fishing shacks. I think we need to play this again. Play fishing it again. shacks, right? I was just thinking about the other day, we were talking about shacks and how they ain't changed much in a long time. <laughs> he is talking about sharks. <laughs> so for anyone who's listening from another part of the country or world, that is the main accent. Uh, and if you ever want to know how to say shark... With a main accent, just think Shaq. Wicked Tessa. That's why I, I thought he was putting it on. I thought he was screwing with us here. No. But it's like a legit question, right? Sure, I mean, absolutely. If, and, and ostensibly, sharks haven't changed much because their environment hasn't changed much. And now that their environment is changing? But there's dozens of species of sharks, and they have all evolved to suit their particular niche and the prey that they go after and the water temperature and the whole nine yards. So, I mean, to say they haven't changed much, I mean, they're an ancient animal, but uh, there's literally dozens of types. I mean, think of the hammerhead, right? I mean, if there's, now, there's a... if there's not an argument for evolution. So, you, so you, re- you reject the premise of the question, which is to say they have changed. Just they've been around for a long time. Right, longer than uh, the rest of us have. That's for sure. Yeah. I think you should get an architectural historian to come in and talk about the vernac- architectural vernacular of shacks in, <laughs> in rural Maine. Uh, I think I could do that. Hello? Hey, Howard. This is Sam again. Hey, Sam. Good. Good. How you doing? I'm fine. Uh, hey, could you just introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Howard Mansfield. Want me to say more? Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> maybe you'd like to plug your book here, for instance. <laughs> For instance, what a good idea. <laughs> yes, uh, Howard Mansfield. I'm the author of a book called Sheds and also a book called Dwelling and Possibility. And I write about our places, our sense of home, and our, our allegiance to all sorts of things like sticks and stones and houses and what makes us feel at home. You wrote a book about sheds. <laughs> Do you feel qualified to talk about shacks? Well, <laughs> well, 
Sam, I, I yes, I, I could I could talk a little bit about, about shacks. Shacks are a kind of shed. Certainly, um, the best shacks survive from generation to generation, and the worst shacks decay and fall apart in the woods. A good shack is basically like it's a it's a tool. It's not self conscious about itself. So it's. It is. It, you could say it is the survival of the fittest shack. They're not great swimmers. Um, <laughs> they, they don't eat people. <laughs> no shack has ever attacked anyone that I know of. And it is somewhat fair to say that they, you know, they they haven't evolved much. They've. The, it's it's sort of a, a, you know, it's almost like a platonic ideal that has that has, we've tweaked, but not but not really altered. I, yeah, I like that idea of a platonic idea. I bet if you kind of did a, a person in the street interview and asked them to quickly sketch a shack, you would get pretty much the same drawing from everybody, you know? All right, is that all we got? That's all we have for today, folks. You guys, wow. <laughs> hey, Sam. Yeah? Okay, it's been a few days since we did Ask Sam, and um, I feel like I have to share something with you. What? Okay, just listen. I used I grew up in Maine, but <clears throat> I dropped my accent when I went away to school out of state. It's very situational. Sometimes I'll bring it out like if I'm buying a load of straw from some boy up in Unity. <laughs> but other times I don't. And that might be a good example for your show. There's times you gotta just sort of adapt to suit. <laughs> That's great. I mean, it's sort of you could sort of tell, right? He was really pouring it on thick. Oh, I, yeah, I thought so. And I mean, I'm from Massachusetts. Same thing. I had a super thick mass accent in high school. I went away to college and lost it. But I, you know, I can go right back there. I yeah. can get. I can fall into it, man. It's like New England code switching. It is. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he lived on thick. <laughs> So if you have a question about the natural world, feel free to play up your regional accent, too, and give us a call on the Ask Sam hotline. The number is 844-GO-OTTER. That's 844-GO-OTTER. Or Gooter, if it's easier to remember. <laughs> and be sure to check out Chris and Dave's podcast, Something Wild. They've been hosting it for just about 20 years and really know their stuff. The latest episode is about garter snakes. Just search for Something Wild on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll put a link on our website, too, outsideinradio.org. Today's episode was produced by me with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Logan Shannon, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Molly Donahue. Our theme music was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Sweet. Cool.